0: Section 13 of The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume 2 The Looting of the Specie Room by Cutliff Hine, Part 1 There was a thump at the door, which was ajar on the ventilating hook. And the voice of Clayton, who was the Birmingham's chief officer, called out, You in there, Purcell? Come right in, said Mr. Horrocks. And when Clayton had unhooked the door, he was invited to take the sofa and help himself to a drink. However, he said he hadn't come for whisky. He was looking tired and serious. For some time, he grumbled on vaguely about the discomfort of the officers' quarters, the vileness of Atlantic weather the slowness of promotion in the town S.S. company's boats and the smallness of pay and the absence of pickings that a chief officer could lay his hands upon and then by an easy transition he got to his own financial embarrassments up until this the purser had been putting in comments in his sharp bright jerky way but when clayton started hinting at the woes and needs of impecuniosity his stout friend began to examine the roof of the cabin with interest and refrain from further speech mr horrocks was a bachelor and reputed wealthy it was known for a fact that an uncle had bequeathed him a considerable sum because three liverpool papers had given extracts from the will and congratulated the legatee in print it was one of mr horrocks professional duties to keep on amiable terms with all journalists he was in receipt of good pay and a liberal allowance from the company and moreover he was known to be one of the artfulest pursers in all the western ocean passenger trade at making bits for himself by various well-recognised methods i'm at my wit's end said clayton there was a bill of sale on the furniture when i left hard luck said horrocks My wife, poor girl, was driving me pretty nearly wild by the way she kept asking me for money. Beastly it must be, said the purser with feeling. If you could see your way to making me a bit of a loan, said Clayton, I should never forget it. I'm sure you wouldn't, nor would you ever forgive me. No, old chap, I like you too well to let you start hating me because you owe me money go and borrow from your enemies. Besides, come to that, I've empty pockets myself. Rats! You'd skin beautifully, and by gad, I've three-quarters of a mind to do it. I tell you, purser, I'm about desperate. Don't be absurd. Slow down the pace ashore to suit your income, and presently you'll get promotion, too. It doesn't look like it i think the skippers of all our boats have got the secret of eternal life there's not one of them resigned or died or been sacked these last twenty months and there doesn't seem to be the smallest chance of a vacancy on ahead it's simply cruel having to drag on all these years on a mate's screw i haven't the heart to blame my wife for spending more than we have she must keep up her position with a captain's pay we could do it and save. But as things are now, I feel like jumping overboard or robbing you of the ship's petty cash. Much better loot the specie room, said Horrocks, laughing. Whew. we're on for a double advertisement this trip. We're trying to cut the time record from New York to Liverpool. And we've got on board the biggest shipment of gold that's been made this year. How much? more than one million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars now there's your chance clayton only a chub lock between you and a fortune and the keys on the bunch in my pocket the chief officer jumped up from the settee as though someone had pricked him and stood facing the purser with gripped hands and gritted teeth what's wrong now he pulled himself together a bit <sighs> if you only realized how hard up i am and how i'm begged and threatened for money by my-by people ashore you'd understand i'm about desperate and not the man to be tempted with a big bait like that a million and a quarter dollars good lord and we could do the thing comfortably i know we could on a steady three thousand a year clayton took himself off after that and Mr. Horrocks was not sorry. He was tired and wanted rest. He considered himself a prince among purses, and to maintain that position did not spare himself work when at sea. He served both himself and his employers loyally, and if he did make more solid cash out of his opportunities than strict people might say was his exact due, he sold his conscience by remembering that he always rendered to the town SS companies Full service for the salary they paid him. But though he lay down on his bed place, sleep would not come to him, and in his mind he grumbled heavily over the load of responsibility that rested on his shoulders, both afloat and elsewhere. Outside, people think everything on these big boats rests on a skipper, he mused, and if anything goes wrong, they say, Poor chap, what a heap of responsibility he has to carry no one looks at the purser in that light passengers think the purser is just the man to throw complaints at if they don't like the mashed potatoes or to get yarns from if they're feeling dull it never dawns on them that a purser's answerable for a sight more than any captain that ever wore uniform and when some day luck does go up and trip him and the company gives him the sack passengers who know the boat say hello, the old purser gone, and swallows some yarn about his having resigned to take up a baronetcy and eight hundred and fifty thousand a year. And besides, I'm not an ordinary purser, with just a wife and family, depending on him. There's always the institution to be thought of. It was not often that Mr. Horrocks let his mind go in this strain, but Clayton's look when he spoke to him about that specie Had made him uncomfortable, and from that moment on he began to have a foreboding that there would be trouble about it somehow. However, he did not have much time for brooding on board, because a purser is kept pretty well on the run at sea. But when they got rid of the passengers at Liverpool and docked, and the bank messenger came on board, I'm free to own he took a good stiff three-finger peg to get a brace on his nerves. In his own words, he could have prophesied trouble ahead like job. The bank messenger was an old fellow he had known for years, just as formal and precise and dryly civil as they make them. He made Mr. Horrocks read through his authorization note, as if they met then for the first time, and then they went below with the messenger's two porters at their heels. The specie room was under the saloon, and badly ventilated and what with the heat and his foreboding that something was wrong the sweat stood out on the purser's forehead as he unlocked the door there was no electric light inside for some reason best known to the builders and his fingers shook as he fumbled with a match to light the old-fashioned candle lamp the prim old bank messenger pulled a long upper lip as he watched him he somewhat naturally put down Mr. Horrocks' trembling fingers to undue conviviality. But when at last the match lit the wick, and the light flared up and showed the room, it was plain that the messenger promptly altered his mind and put the purser's shakiness down to sheer, unadulterated guilt. He was hardly to blame. The forebodings had come off to a nicety. The place had been looted clearly enough, and the gold boxes lay brazenly open about the floor. Looks as if somebody's been hurried over this job, Mr. Horrocks, commented the old messenger nastily. It's a general custom to fill up the boxes with an equal weight of lead and get the bank's receipt for them, so as to try and locate the robbery on shore. Then I wish to heaven they'd done it here. We've cut the Western Ocean Time record this trip, and that's, done the boat a lot of good but if this affair conies up to light it will do us a precious sight more harm look here i shall go straight up to our office and report and i suppose you will go and tell your bank people. probably the police will be called in but i don't suppose we either of us want the matter gabbled over in the papers i know you don't said the old fellow dryly why should your bank it won't improve their credit to let all the world know they've been robbed and if there's no fuss made about it the thief won't be scared and there'll be all the more chance of catching him the messenger looked at the purser coldly with the thief's feelings i have no concern mr horrocks and as to what action my bank may take i can give you no guarantee speaking without prejudice I should say it will be a matter for our directors and they will probably fend your directors their decision in writing and now if you please i will go back and make my report go ahead you old fool said horrocks to himself and moved towards the door but in the dim light of the candle lamp he did not see a box which lay in his way and stumbled against it heavily his figure was portly and not adapted to stumbling without doing himself personal damage. Probably he never felt pleasure over stubbing his toe before. Great Caesar, he shouted. They haven't looted the place clean after all. If there's one full box left, there may be others. The messenger took the announcement stolidly. He was a most wooden messenger. All he said was, whatever you give over into my charge i shall be pleased to give you an accurate receipt for mr horrocks rapped out a few remarks that were intended to get through that messenger's skin somewhere and then set to work to go through those boxes himself he had neither patience nor trust to let any one else do the job and in the end when it appeared that only about a third of the boxes had been looted he could have sung for sheer joy Perhaps there was not much to be pleased about. There was some five hundred thousand dollars gone anyway. But for the moment he thought no more about it than if it had been a dollar, and snapped his fat fingers before the old wooden face's nose in sheer delight. Now, where do we stand? he said. Oh, let my porters take the full boxes off the steamer, and I'll give you a receipt for them, said the messenger, and so he did carefully writing with his stylograph after the word boxes in the printed form the addition of said to contain gold you'll remember what i mentioned about the newspapers the purser said to him as he buttoned up his coat to go and you mr horrocks will eagerly remember my answer he replied the afternoon was getting on for late and by the time the purser had walked out of the docks to the electric railway and run up to the landing stage station and reach the office the firm's principals had gone away and there was no getting hold of them for the night there are strict orders that neither of the partners are to be rung up in the evening but mr horrocks thought the occasion sufficiently out of the ordinary to break the rule so he went to the telephone and presently got a snubbing for his pains there was nothing for it but to write out a report for them to see tomorrow morning and in the meanwhile, try if the police could do anything to find the thief. The purser was more at home there. Officers in the Western Ocean passenger trade are so constantly carrying shady customers back and across the Atlantic that the police find it suits their purpose to be very civil to them and keep as close in touch as circumstances will permit. They see the great liners off, and they see the men They very often do the trip across and ashore, both in Liverpool and New York. It was any little service we can do for you, Mr. Horrocks. Only too delighted, if you'll name it. So the purser had only to find out who were on duty in the police station, and in two minutes he was sitting in a room with two smart detectives who had a personal acquaintance with half the rogues in creation. They heard his story, and Trent, the senior of the two, jerked in questions as he went along when mr horrocks had finished trent asked for the birmingham's passenger list first thing i thought of said the purser and laid it on the table now if you'd asked me i should have said the cruise list would have come sooner into your thoughts i've got that too but you must remember that i've got no evidence against anyone meaning clayton well I must confess he seems the likeliest bird so far, but let's look and see if there are any of our friends among the passengers. Ah, there's this divine, his real name's Scott New York wired us to say he was coming, but divine Scott's line is high-class forgery, and like a sensible man, he sticks to it and does a sound conservative business. No Scott divine's not stolen your gold, Mr. Horrocks wouldn't know what to do with it if it'd been given him paper's the only thing he can handle this fellow schneider here in the second class real name plunkett is another shady one i saw him off from the landing stage in ninety one and he nodded to me as he went aboard the tender i was there on the stage as usual to-day and he nodded to me as he came ashore seemed to expect me like arson and insurance frauds are his specialities and he's not at all likely to try anything fresh Your criminal of today knows his limitations, or thinks he knows them very nicely, and never dares to outstep his bounds. For instance, either of these two men would take an impression in wax of your specie room key if they saw it lying about, because such a thing might have its eventual uses. But neither of them could make a duplicate key, and neither of them, as I say, would have tackled the game of getting all that big weight of gold out of the ship "'and through the customs. "'You seem to take it for granted "'that I leave my keys perpetually lying about "'for anyone to get at. "'I'm not quite new to shipboard pilfering, Mr. Trent. My dear sir. "'I know you and your methods with an accuracy "'that would surprise you. "'It's my trade to know everybody and everything. "'For instance, I know exactly the construction "'of the Birmingham's specie room under the saloon. Walls, floor, and roof are all made of chilled steel plates that would turn any drill in creation. The lock's are chub and unpickable, and in fact nothing short of dynamite would open that specie room to a man who hadn't a key. The thing's been done with quiet and caution. So dynamite and those high explosives are out of the question. And if you've any theory, Mr Horrocks, as to how the place could possibly have been looted without the help of a key, I'd like to hear it. If I'd a notion of how the robbery was worked, I should have told you at once. I'll not swear that my keys were never out of my pocket, as they were in use twenty times a day. That would be impossible. But as for their being habitually left lying about, that's all twaddle. I can tell you I look after that bunch very shrewdly. Quite so, said Trent. But as a man with a lump of wax in the palm of his hand could take an accurate cast, of the one he wanted in an instant, and file another to match it in a matter of a couple of hours, you must see the force of my point. Now, you've done all you can for us, Mr Horrocks, and my humble advice is go home, have a good dinner, and forget your worries for the time being. We'll work through these passenger and crew lists more carefully for likely operators, and meanwhile we'll set all our machinery going to keep the gold from being carried further away. It's the weight of it that will handicap the thief more than anything else you might call in or ring us up at midnight if you're still in Liverpool, so Mr. Horrocks, with a sigh, left the office and went out into the lamp-lit street. He did not allow himself the luxury of a home in his official capacity. He was one of the best known of men and cultivated notoriety as a professional asset at sea and ashore in new york he was always the purser but ashore at the liverpool end where for a short period his duties closed between voyages he became a personage wrapped in some mystery he was occasionally reported as prowling in liverpool slums but for the most part he disappeared entirely from the ken of his associates when he was asked in chaff where he bestowed himself at these intervals he would reply that he had a quiet business as a burglar. When he was asked seriously, he would answer with the equal seriousness that he was away enjoying himself. He denied himself even a bedroom ashore, making his shipboard cabin his headquarters when he was in Liverpool, and taking nomadic meals in restaurants of the cheaper sort. But just now he felt it was no time for the mortification of the palate. By nature he was something of a gourmand, and a judge of vintages, though it was rarely that he allowed himself to launch into these ashore. This night, however, seemed sufficiently momentous for exceptional treatment, and instead of the cheap and nasty eating-house of his more ordinary want, he betook himself to the Adelphi, and spread a napkin across his knees to face the Table d'Orte, Little enough satisfaction did he get out of it. A noisy party at the next table took all his mind. There, at the head, sat Clayton, evidently the giver of the feast. There were two other men the purser did not know, and three women in extravagant evening dress. Mrs. Clayton decorated the end of the table with a presence that was florid and bejewelled. They were drinking their champagne by the magnum, "'and making a good deal of clatter. "'The scale of the entertainment "'should have been well above the purse "'of a mere chief officer "'of an Atlantic passenger boat "'at the best of times. "'But when Mr. Horrick thought "'of Clayton's confession at sea "'and of the bill of sale on his furniture, "'he was filled with a discomfort "'he could not get over. "'Where had the money come from "'for this spread? "'Yes, where? "'Where?' course after course came and left him untempted the wine soured in his throat the maddening facts danced before him clayton had been in desperate straits the specie room had been looted and clayton was now possessed of ready cash but at last the noisy party got up to go and clayton came across with an affable greeting hello horrocks letting yourself go and have a decent meal for once in a way tired of your usual slums i thought you had a bill of sale on your furniture said the purser bluntly so thought i but it appears i haven't in fact i gather that my rich uncle has died and so we've been having a bit of a jamboree to wish him a pleasant journey the missus fixed it all up as a surprise we're going to finish up at the theatre we've got a box Will you come? Thanks, but I've got to finish up at the police station. We're trying pretty hard to find out who looted the specie room, and by all appearances, I expect we shall succeed. Hello! Has somebody been getting at your gold boxes? Well, I wish the criminal luck anyway. A poor man could find a lot more amusement out of that money than any bank would. "'especially if the poor man was married. "'Well, good night, purser, unless I see you again. "'But come along and join us in the box if you change your mind. "'You needn't waste time hunting for the gold. "'You'll never see that any more. "'But I shouldn't leave the specie room keys loose in your jacket pocket again after this if I were you. "'It's so easy for anyone to borrow them for half a minute "'and take a squeeze of them in wax. "'Well, good-bye.' I mustn't keep the ladies waiting any longer. Well, thought Mr Horrocks as he watched him go away. I've no exact proof that you did the actual stealing yourself, but you've not got the knack of advertising your innocence. Under the circumstances, this spread tonight strikes one as distinctly bad taste. Few men in Liverpool spent a more uncomfortable time than Mr. Horrocks did that night. As he viewed the affair, whether the thief or the gold ever turned up again did not seem to matter much to the case. Whatever happened, the firm would say the initial fault was his for leaving the keys about, and though, as a point of fact, he had stuck to the bunch as closely as any purser could, if directors once get a notion that one of their officers is careless... They had their knife into him at once. And so that night, as he walked about the streets to pass the time, he pictured himself dismissed from the company and blacklisted, so that he should never get further employment anywhere else. It was not for himself, as Mr. Horrocks the purser, that he feared. As that official, his wants were small, and his private income covered them easily. But he was a man with an alias a man who led a double existence. Throughout all his life, he had carried an infinite tenderness for those wretched children of the slums in which Liverpool is so prolific, and of late he had contrived to found an institution in a village near Chester for their maintenance and relief. It pleased him to pose as a portly local philanthropist. Down there he was Mr. Rocks of Rocks Orphanage. "'a somewhat pompous personage "'who was very different from the affable purser "'in the town SS company's employ. "'It was lest the power to continue being Mr. Rock's "'should be taken away from him "'that he was so full of dread. "'However, next morning when he went to the office, "'the directors were not so severe as they might have been. "'Nothing about the trouble had got into the papers, "'but on the contrary,' There were flattering paragraphs about the Birmingham's cutting the record, her luxurious accommodation, and the celebrities she had carried during her race across, just as Mr Horrocks arranged it. A wonderful thing, the power of the press, if it's used the right way. So the directors told Mr Horrocks to turn the boat over to the shore purser in the usual routine, And get on with his ordinary work. End of the looting of the specie room by Cutler Hine, Part One, Recording by Maria Brook, New Zealand.